make a list of everything you do in your day and all the things that you do. Your goal is to move that over to somebody else to delegate that. And your job is to do what you uniquely are qualified to do, what only you and your organization can do. So figure what that is, figure out what that is and do that. And you know, give your team the ability to take ownership and, and, um, you know, uh, have the buy-in from them that they're really leading their own projects that I'm not micromanaging and, and this idea of like working on your business, not in your business. Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. We interview women in the sports and entertainment businesses to teach you the tips and the mindset that will get you to the top faster. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Let's bring visibility to women who are crushing it in their roles. Join us week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. We will lead you forward because leadership is female. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast, Julie Smolanski, who is the CEO of Lifeway Foods. We are so excited to have you. I want you to introduce yourself for us, but before you do, I need to read off this list of accolades. You were named a Fortune Business 40 Under 40, Fortune's 55 Most Influential Women on Twitter, Fortune Business Best Instagrammers of the 40 Under 40, Fast Company's Most Creative People in Business 1000. You serve as an emeritus member of the United Nations Foundation Global Entrepreneurs Council and were part of the 2015 class of young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Wow, your accolades are a mouthful, certainly, and you've worked so hard to earn them all. And I just really like to highlight that because we need to shine through our work and you certainly have. And now I'll let you tell us who you are and what you do. Oh, thank you so much. That's uh, so generous and a beautiful little rundown of my uh, short bio. Um, makes me tired just listening to, to it. But um, yeah, no, I'm the president and CEO of Lifeway Foods, the Kiefer company. Maybe you remember, know the the bottle. It's just kind of, um, kind of uh, people are familiar with with the the bottle it's in every grocery store, probiotic yogurt like drink. Um, I've also written a cookbook called the Kiefer Cookbook, um, which helps people, you know, figure out ways to use Kiefer and share some of the history and storytelling of how my family um, started the company and, you know, my leadership around it. Um, and I've also produced a couple of movies. Um, I've uh, been an executive producer on four documentaries. One was called The Hunting Ground, which a lot of people have heard of, and another one on the record most recently, um, right before COVID, actually. Um, we premiered it at Sundance. So kind of dabble in a few things and keep myself busy and um, you know, just try to be of service to the world and kind of follow my own gut and passion. And um, it's such a such an honor to be talking to you and getting the chance to talk with your community and, and share. So excited. Well, we're so excited to have you and learn from you and learn more about your story. And I want to start when you became CEO. So you became the youngest female CEO of a publicly held firm at the age of 27 when you took over leadership of Lifeway Foods in 2002. So tell us about this time in your life and stepping into this giant public leadership role. Yeah, well, it was under challenging and traumatic times. Our founder, who's my father, he had a sudden heart attack and passed away at the age of 55. And uh, overnight, I became the CEO. So it was definitely a challenging and traumatic experience and time. Um, but, you know, my family and I were refugees from the former Soviet Union, uh, the, specifically Ukraine. Um, at the time, it was just the Soviet Union. But 
Uh, today, we're actually calling it Soviet Ukraine, which is a new thing. But uh, yeah, it was born in Kiev. And when I was um, right when I was born, my father sort of made a silent promise to himself to get me out of the country and do everything he can to, to you know, bring me to freedom. So um, when I was one, the the just about a month after I was or a couple of weeks after I turned one, we defected in the middle of the night and, you know, three months in Italy in exile, uh, eventually ended up in Chicago, landed at O'Hare in 1976 with $116 in our pocket, no language, no friends. We were the first of 48 families that were settled in Chicago from the Soviet Union, from this first small little slit in the Iron Curtain, height of the Cold War. I mean, it was a very different time than today. Like today, immigrants and refugees come from that land and there's resources, there's translators, there's, you know, a path, there's a, a path that has been blazed largely in part to my family, my parents who, you know, did this trailblazed. And um, two years after settling, my mother sort of uh, looked around and said, well, there, there's a lot of food in America it's very different than um, the Slavic food that she grew up with that we grew, we, she her and my dad grew up with. So she opened up the first Russian Ukrainian deli in Chicago's Rogers Park. And um, that sort of is what started our family, our entry into the food business, the food industry. My mother quickly became an importer and distributor of Eastern European foods. And um, my father was a mechanical engineer, he, um, had a master's degree in engineering from the Soviet Union. So he had a certain skill as well. And they went to Germany on a food buying show. This was now like nine years into our immigration. They went to Germany looking for contain food to food stuff to be bringing into the States. And they went into a grocery store and bought three bottles of kefir. And in European countries, in Eastern Europe especially, Kefir is a 2,000-year-old staple that has been passed down generation to generation and, you know, survived through word of mouth and, but did not exist in the United States. And my dad just, you know, looked at my mom and said, gosh, America has everything, but it doesn't have kefir. And my mom said, well, you're an engineer, you build machinery and plant plants, why don't you build a plant and make kefir and I'll sell it through my distribution system. Six months later, he incorporated the business. I was 11 at the time. So, I mean, I really grew up watching my parents be very entrepreneurial and take risks and kind of be fearless, really, that and let's just call it what it is. They were totally fearless. So, you know, when this happened, you know, when my when I saw the that my father passed away, I kind of that moment that night, I said, you know, failure is not an option. My parents came to the States with significantly less resources, no language, no money. You know, now in 2002, at the time, I had already had a lot more resources, even under the umbrella of this horrible loss. I did have so much more um, going. And my I'd worked with my dad uh, for five years before his passing, right after college. I was in grad school. I was going to be a psychologist, serendipity, different story another time. Um, but I ended up in his office, fell in love with what he was talking about, fell in love with wellness. Like, even though I grew up with it and was a kid and, you know, had all these years watched him build um, the business, suddenly one day it clicked. And I was like, wait, I don't, I think I'm going to leave grad school and I'm going to come and work for you and help you build out. I think there's all this opportunity in the wellness space and self-care before it was even self-care. I think that there's an opportunity to expand to my friends and people like, you know, that I know, like my market, my demographic at that point, it was still largely more in the ethnic markets in the market, you know, European delis, Brooklyn, New York, Miami, places where Europeans were living. And um, I said, you know, I think every soccer mom should be drinking this. Every athlete, you know, really every person should be drinking our, our kefir. And so I went to work with him to kind of help spread that that mission. And um, and then, you know, he passed away. But I think because I worked with him for those five years and, and grew up in the business, I had a certain intuitive skill set that helped me transition into leadership as, as CEO. 
Well, under your leadership, the company has boosted revenues to over 140 million today from 12 million when you took over. This question is probably way too big to answer in this podcast. We would have to probably have weeks with you, but what can you attribute to this success? And are there a few highlights on how you had such tremendous growth with your company? Thank you for asking that. Yes, that is like a book probably. <laughs> it's a lot, but, um, and it's taken a long time to get here. Um, well, one of the earliest things I think uh, somebody had recommended, I read The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, which was, I think, kind of the original blueprint for influencer marketing. We did that really early on and we connected with nutritionists, with athletes who, you know, influence their communities, with runners that became a big community. Uh, we passed out product. At, at every opportunity for trial to help build awareness. So all the little 5Ks in our community, not just in our community, but nationwide, wherever we could get samples to, to athletes, runners, triathletes, um, soccer moms, uh, yogi, you know, yoga enthusiasts, anybody who was, you know, we, we were reaching any influencer who had a community and who were able to influence their friends and family. And so that was one thing that was important. And we, we we, well, I mean, bottom line, the non-negotiables, we had an incredible product with an incredible story with a, a product that worked, that had science behind it. You know, it's a 2000 year old product that originated in the Caucasus Mountains where the people lived to over a hundred years of age. They attributed their longevity to the consumption of kefir. And then it wasn't until um, 1908, about 100 years ago, where Dr. Ellie, a little over 100 years ago, um, Dr. Ellie Mechnikoff is considered the grandfather of immunity. He did the first science studies around kefir and probiotics and its influence on our life in general, our wellness. And he won a Nobel Prize for this work. And, and since that time, the science has only been backing up what my ancestors intuitively knew in their gut. They said that when they drank kefir, they experienced a sense of well-being. So I think when a product works and has this great story and you can tell it in an authentic way, I mean, Again, my parents came from the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, brought this old product that's a staple with them that in, in their land, in their country, was consumed from cradle to grave every single day. They could not believe that in America, nobody knew about it, that it didn't exist, that nobody was talking about, you know, gut health and, and bacteria. Like they knew that it had all these medicinal benefits. They just, that this was something that every generation knew, that grandmothers told each generation. So, and since that, and even just in the last three years with COVID, the amount of science that's been conducted around kefir probiotics, the microbiome, gut health, just in the last three years, the amount of science is more than in the entire hundreds of year, hundred years. So it's really powerful. It's really an exciting time, I think, for the category, for Lifeway as a brand leading the category. But yeah, so a product that works, a great story, authenticity, a passion. You know, we are so passionate. I am so passionate. My my father was so passionate about kefir and its bacteria. You know, Dr. Ellie Mechnikoff was like a rock star in my house. Like my dad would always talk about Dr. Ellie Mechnikoff and reading his books and reading reading the science literature. So, you know, that's really important. And then just like from a leadership standpoint, somebody early on told me another CEO, third generation family business, um, actually Robert Passon is his name from Radio Flyer, the iconic Radio Flyer. He told me early on, he said, you know, make a list of everything you do in your day and all the things that you do, your goal is to move that over to somebody else to delegate that. And your job is to do what you uniquely are qualified to do, what only you and your organization can do. So figure what that is, figure out what that is and do that. And, you know, give your team the ability to take ownership and, and um, you know, uh, have the buy-in from them that they're really leading their own projects that I'm not micromanaging and, and this idea of like working on your business, not in your business. You know, I think those are really helpful pieces of like actionable pieces of advice, because if I had never really heard that or gotten the okay, the, the approval to kind of 
think big picture, I probably would still be doing the small day-to-day things like ordering the toilet paper or whatever, instead of like growing the category and becoming the category leader. So those were some of the things. And like, I think also um, something that was a game changer for us, which today sounds obvious and like baked into any business, but for us, we were so early. So we were the first on social media as a brand. And I really attribute it to my youth as a leader. You know, my CEO counterparts were all 30 years older than me and mostly men, 30, at least 30, maybe 40 years older than me. They didn't know what Twitter was or what Facebook was. You know, they thought it was like the old AOL, you know, creepy chat rooms and stuff. Like they were like, I was like, you have to get on Twitter. They were like, that's for creepy old men. They did not get it. And for me, I thought, well, Kiefer survived 2000 years by word of mouth. And here we have social media, which was free at the time. I mean, still free, basically, but free. And that word of mouth is like fire with social media. So I really saw it as an opportunity to expand our community, to build an organic conversation with our community. So we were like the fourth brand on Twitter, the first brand on Facebook. Facebook would take our page down because they they would say businesses can't exist on Facebook. We would just put another page up. Eventually they figured out, oh yes, brands have a place on Facebook. And then of course we have Instagram and today TikTok. And so that's obvious it's grown. But the time we were so early, we were so early that our children's, we have a a kid's pouch product um, called ProBugs. So the, each ProBug, each pouch has like a character like Peter ProBug or Polly ProBug. And they each have a little story like Princess Penelope waves her magic wand and she gets rid of all the bad bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. So each one of these characters had a little MySpace page that's how early we were. So it was so, so ahead of its time. I would never have imagined where social media would have gone since that time. I think that was like 2003, four. And I remember Vogue magazine did a write-up about us and they said, LifeWay's use of social media, early use of social media, created a cult-like following and an avant-garde status. I mean, I love that. That just made me so happy and proud. And I think it's really true. It, It gave our brand an organic voice, created this community, created a place where our fans, uh, could come and gather and share and talk about the benefits or recipes, whatever, you know, the ways that they they talk about our product. And and it also reduced our demographic, our average age dropped by over 15 years, which for a legacy brand like us, we are always looking to bring in the next new generation of users um, to keep, you know, that those users fresh and keep uh, introducing, you know, fermented food, especially something kind of new to the American taste palette. So those are some things, but there's been so many. Those are the highlights. <laughs> oh, that was fantastic, Julie. And I heard some amazing advice there. You used your youth as your superpower, which a lot of times younger women in their careers are are using it as an excuse. I'm too young. And you said, nope, this is this is my superpower. You gave yourself permission to think big picture. You got amazing advice from other CEOs and you used your team to really get out there and do that boots on the ground work to grow the company. It's such an amazing story and so many great leadership pieces of advice laid throughout. And as much success as you have had, there had to have been a hurdle to overcome along the way. Can you name one of those? There's been so many, like every business and life. Um, well, recently, I would say the one of the big challenges and hurdles we've experienced was this like anti-dairy movement that we've experienced and this big fascination with elimination diets. I mean, for all the good that social media does, there's also some dark sides and pitfalls. And I think something that I worry about that we as a brand and corporation think about all the time is how do we make sure that we are good stewards of information and that we really try to manage some of the disinformation and misinformation that's out there. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are quote unquote influencers who are peddling, not even, not science, it's opinions or, and and there's no 
policy, public pol health policy or nu nutrition, you know, um, that they don't have an education in nutrition or medical, you know, elimination diets should be definitely followed by uh, or, or run by a doctor who's certified who like will weigh out the benefits and the health, you know, the risks when you embark on something like that. But anyways, so we, we've, I think as a, as a industry have been battling some of those anti-dairy movement conversations, elimination diets, and, you know, there, there is a need for, you know, net dairy free products for sure. You know, how widely that becomes like a trend or how necessary is it? Not everybody should be on a dairy-free diet. And I would say our product is, uh, because it's fermented, our product is easy to consume to, for those who are lactose intolerant. Um, so that's like not an issue. And, and, and constantly telling people that it's fine if you're lactose intolerant is one of our biggest tasks today, letting people know that it's easy to digest even if you're lactose intolerant. Um, and the other thing is that there's a misconception that dairy is inflammation causing fermented dairy reduces inflammation. So again, it's like getting this information out. It's incredibly important that we share this information and it has public health ramifications. We have, I think these elimination diets will cause a generation of young people to have osteoporosis at the highest levels that we've ever seen. So I think it's really important. And I feel like that's a big task, but, but yeah, like going through that challenge and now the pendulum has swung back because I do think that that science eventually catches up and we're seeing kind of a, uh, the hot girl diet, quote unquote, back to dairy, you know, dairy, high protein, authentic proteins, real food um, is all kind of coming back. And we're also learning the pitfalls from a like environment standpoint, you know, almond milk, for example, uh, uses an extreme amount of water and all of the things that, you know, people are trying to prevent um, the, the activism that we're trying to do in the way that we eat is kind of reverse impact if you know you're using all this water to create a product that you're trying to help the environment with. So anyways, there's little challenges like that that we just we we steer the ship and navigate whatever challenges come our way. Um, and we sometimes have to pivot and um, go with our gut sometimes. But we did launch for those consumers who want to be dairy free or just want an occasional alternative, an oat-based dairy-free probiotic line. So, you know, also meeting the consumer where they're at. And if that's something that they is important to our consumer and community base, we want to be there for them and, um, and, you know, provide a product that, that is the best quality that we can get. So, yeah, so, so many challenges. That's one. The list is long. <laughs> well, you have a very broad understanding of the market and, your consumer, and most importantly, your product. And I think the last piece of advice you laid there, like meeting your consumer where they're at, you are presenting them with information of the health benefits of the product, but then also offering this alternative to really stay front and center with your consumers. And I think um, what you're what you're doing and the way that you've laid that out is really smart and has so many applications to so many businesses on how to better connect with and listen to your customers, whether you're telling them new information they might not know or offering them an alternative product. Like I feel like you guys have really covered the bases there, which is amazing. And kind of leads me to my next question. You know, we started off this interview, you're the youngest, you're a woman, a CEO, it's been 20 years. So what progress do you think we've made as women in business in the last 20 years? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, it's definitely better than when I was kind of coming up. I still had really limited role models. And I will say that, you know, I, I really am grateful to my father. He himself really pushed me forward all the time and kind of said, Julie, you can do anything in the world that you want. You live in America. You can do anything except be the president of the United States. And that's only because I was not born here. But other than that, I mean, that's like a pretty big spectrum of opportunity there. So he really, and every like board meeting, he made sure that I presented at every 
meeting of shareholders. He made sure that I presented at. He sent me to New York to be media trained for a month. He invested in me. He always told me that I could do anything. And I think that was one thing that was very important to me, that I had a strong male, specifically my father, telling me, giving me permission, saying you could do anything you want. Don't limit yourself think big. So that was important to me. And he he pointed out strong female role models, which I still do today. And I think we all should. Um, like there were so much few in business, but Christy Hefner, who took over from Hugh Hefner for Playboy, there was a special on her on CNN. And I was just home from home um at college and home for for a night. And my dad said, Hey, Julie, come over here, watch this. I look at what Christy has done for, for her dad's company. I want you to do that for Lifeway. One day you're going to be just like her. You're going to be president too. So, you know, having some, somebody to hold on to as an example of like how it's done, who's trailblazed Oprah, you know, I didn't necessarily know Oprah, but I followed her career and watched her and, and watched, you know, the challenges that she overcame and like held on to her for dear life, at least in my mind. And uh, definitely still on my bucket list to get interviewed by Oprah would be a great um, bucket list. So Oprah, if you're watching, listening, call me. Yeah. So, you know, looking for those strong female relationships that I could also um, get advice from and get a support network was, and I, I built my own network um, where anytime a, a female was like in the workplace uh, as a CEO, whatever, I please, can I pick your brain for a few minutes? I have coffee with you. Can I have lunch? Like, so finding mentors, men, women and men um, was very important to me throughout my career. And today I try to do that for other younger generations behind me, kind of also this idea that, you know, pull other people as you're rising up, pull other people along with you. So that was important. And but, you know, so yeah, today there's a lot more female founded businesses, definitely see women on the covers of the top leading business magazines and, and you know, on the news, but it's still, we still have a long way to go. Let's be honest, like executive teams, boardrooms, you know, I think only 2% of boardrooms today are still, you know, held by women and that needs to change. I mean, I think that a diverse management team, leadership team, all of that is so important that we need those teams to really mirror what our communities look like. And they're just not doing that. And I think it's really important for innovation that we're looking through the lens as all the various users of our products. You know, for me, it was important to look through the lens as a mother, as a woman, as a, an athlete, you know, and I think about product innovation or building the team or, you know, HR policies, et cetera, et cetera. Like, through looking through the lens from, from looking through in different lenses um, that reflect my community and not just me, but making sure that like my board is um, similar and eclectic and diverse. Uh, but there's so much more, more room to grow. And, you know, I know that bro culture is still a thing. I still experience it to this day. Um, I very often will walk into a room where it's kind of a mixed mixed gender leadership group, um, like husbands or well, usually husbands and their wives. Um, and very often the husbands are sort of the member of the networking group. And very often, even though I'm also the member of the networking group, undoubtedly the men all end up walking off into their little circle. And I think about how this unofficial powwow, unofficial boardroom happens in these, you know, cocktail party networking gatherings. Um, you know, I will never get invited into those circles. I'm not holding a, you know, cigar. I'm not holding a glass of whiskey. I'm not on the golf course. Um, there's still a lot of things that I'm missing that I know um, that I'm not going to be invited to. I definitely today still feel this bro culture that that we're up against, but we keep going. We keep proving, you know, that women have a lot to bring to the table, to boardrooms, to leadership teams, to, you know, management teams. And society in general, through our art, through music, through, I mean, you name it, every, every dimension, healthcare, you know, you name it. 
If you are listening to this podcast, I know you are a busy professional. We can agree we are always looking for products that are convenient and make life easier. Mobot water bottles are one of these products. It's a water bottle and a foam roller in one. I use the water bottle at the gym, staying hydrated in boot camp and then flipping the bottle on its side at the end of class to quickly foam roll my legs. It helps with recovery and gets me back to work faster. Get yours at mobot.com and use the code leadershipisfemale, all one word, to get 15% off. Support Lonnie Cooper, the female founder of this product, and support yourself. This is a must-have wellness water bottle. I don't know about you, but I love learning more about myself. If there's a quiz out there to help me better understand who I am, I'll take it. If there's a journal prompt, I'm using it. But how about a business that helps female leaders communicate effectively while inspiring confidence and trust in those you want to impact? Sign me up. Breakthrough Brands is unlocking clarity for women leading progress. They build leadership brands for women to discover what inspires them, define what drives them, and unlock how to share their brands with others. Do you want to gain clarity on your personal brand? Shoot me a note at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com or on Instagram, and we will introduce you to the women who will help you unlock your leadership brand. That's breakthroughbrands.com. At Leadership is Female, we are serious about supporting you in your career. That includes the tips to get you ahead inside your current organization or provide you with the next big opportunity in a new role. That's why we have partnered with Legacy Search, an executive recruiting firm specializing in mid to senior level executive searches across professional, collegiate, and minor league sports. Check out the openings listed at LegacySportsSearch.com or in our monthly Leadership is Female newsletter. Hint, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, head to leadershipisfemale.com. If you find a job listed at Legacy Sports Search that looks like it should be yours, email us at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com and we will introduce you directly to the opportunity. This is your career. Make the most of it. Yeah, Yeah, well, it sounds like early on, your biggest champion was your dad. And he really helped you to just have the foundation to just springboard off of when the opportunity arose, just ran from there and not let anything stop you. And, you know, women have a special kind of leadership power and you've been able to employ that to just grow your company fantastically. (laughs) Thank you so much. And it's so great to hear that because as you're saying it, it's reminding me, I've shared this story a number of times, but I'm just really reminded, you know, the night that he passed away, you know, all the friends come and gather at the spouses, surviving spouses, house and family. And his best friend said three feet away from me, there's no way a girl can run this company. That's it. It's over. Sell your stock. It's done. Company's done. And the next day the stock just dropped. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. Like everybody did sell their shares. Um, so I knew that people did not believe in me, but it didn't matter. I just said to myself, failure is not an option. And my parents worked so hard and risked so much to get us to where we were. I was not going to let my father's dream, this company fail. And I just put my head down. And for those first four years, just worked like crazy, like did not sleep, probably barely ate, did not have a life. And it didn't, the only thing that mattered to me was this company and and making sure that it not just survived, stabilized and thrived. And um, I, today I say thank you to the haters. I say thank you to that individual who said that because he really gave me fuel for, for my fire and he helped me. Yeah. So say thank you to the naysayers. They're there for a reason. And I have used, used them. So don't stop. It's so, it's, it's so true to adopt that mindset of fuel to the fire from those negative comments. Don't let them take you down. Just let them prop you up because they're not going to be right. Yeah. You can do it and look how far you've come. It's been an amazing journey and you haven't, you haven't done it with with your blinders on, you have endeavored on some amazing products outside of your role as CEO. And I want to make sure and talk about those because for almost 30 years, you've actively worked to end domestic violence and sexual assault. 
So tell us a little bit about your work in an area that needs a lot of attention. For sure. Thank you for asking about it. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, well, I'm a survivor myself. And so I know and have firsthand experience with what that identity feels like. And, you know, I have been, uh, as a teenager, worked in the space, became, uh, helped write the first teen dating violence curriculum in Chicago. The curriculum is still being used today. Hundreds and thousands of kids have gone through it. So super proud of that. And, you know, went into schools and helped teach that and created those, you know, created opportunities for conversation back when it was super, super, super taboo. And nobody did this, this work in college, became a certified rape counselor. And, you know, as my, as I, you know, built my career at Lifeway, kind of looked at myself and my life and gender roles in general and thought, you know, here I am, this powerful, quote unquote, powerful CEO with all these opportunities and really more privileged than the majority of women in the whole world. And what am I doing with that power and privilege? And what else, like, how else can I go further in this conversation, try to move the needle, um, you know, use my platform to have a, a conversation with society around this topic. So yeah, I that's um, became an executive producer on a number of documentaries. One that um, was Oscar nominated Emmy winning was The Hunting Ground, which Lady Gaga um, donated the song for. And when the Oscars, 2016 Oscars, the song was nominated and uh, myself and 50 other survivors and Gaga shared the stage. I really think that was one of the domino effects for the Me Too movement. Eight months later, Me Too broke. Um, and I knew that all of the members in the audience at that time were, they were sobbing. Let's just be honest, everyone, it was not a dry eye in the in the audience. And I knew that they weren't just, you know, sharing those tears for us on the stage, uh, but for themselves and their own stories. And so I'm not surprised that the Me Too movement broke shortly after that film. And I couldn't be more proud of, you know, the decades of work that we, I had done to, um, you know, end, of course, end violence um, and, and provide support for survivors and, you know, make sure that they have resources to heal and, and move forward in their lives and, and find joy. And so, yeah, it became very important to me. And, and I also created a nonprofit, founded a nonprofit called Test 400K because I learned that there was a backlog of 400,000 untested rape kits that had been kind of covered up for the last 30, 40 years. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow, I here I have been, you know, CEO for 20 years. And when I was a rape crisis counselor back 25 years ago, all of those kits that I had been involved with, you know, I had been in 100 hospital rooms in Chicago. Now there's 400,000 all around the United States. And how are they not being tested, analyzed? Women, mostly women, gave up their bodies to give evidence. Their bodies become a crime scene. And we don't even owe them that we don't even give them the dignity of analyzing that evidence is just sitting in some locker room warehouse. It, it's appalling to me. So Human Rights Watch said this was the biggest violation women in the United States face women, human rights violation women in the United States felt it were, were experiencing. So I thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta be a part of this conversation. I went to the White House, Obama White House, advocated with him and um, worked with then Vice President Joe Biden's task force and ending violence against women. The movie, The Hunting Ground had, well, just jumping back to college assaults, the movie had helped create over 300 new policies at, in at universities it was just definitely a game changer. And then, um, so test 400 K helped change some laws. We changed, halted the status of limit limitations on kits in Illinois. Um, we set up a rape tracking and accountability systems and uh, victim notification systems. So super, super proud of all this work. And it's also really inspiring since me too, to see how many, 
other activists have been activated and how many other people have their torches lit and they're also carrying and moving forward and, and having this conversation. We'll never go back. I mean, it'll never go back to what it was, which is all that I could ask for. And I think every generation will get safer, stronger. I hope that, you know, the conversations that boys are having, men are having is around, you know, enthusiastic consent and accountability and, um, you know, toxic, toxic masculinity, and that they're also having these conversations in, in the appropriate ways and that we can work together and build allies and, you know, hold criminals accountable for their actions so that, that it doesn't happen anymore. I am like so emotional listening to you talk and hear about test 400 K and it's, it's clear how you identified this project. And any, I think any, any one you tell about it would be emboldened to want to help because it is, it's such a crime uh, and the way that you've described it, it just, it, it's mind blowing that, that, that backlog existed but this was obviously an enormous project and an enormous goal. And often this is where people get paralyzed as they can identify the issue, but they don't know where to start. So how did you get to work? And then, you know, you did all this work and created this tremendous change. Like, how did you get the ball rolling? How did you start moving? I mean, I just started talking about it. You know, I was on a panel with another woman talking about like what I loved and I particularly loved this other film name escapes me, but it was a movie around the cover up of sexual assault on war in, in, in the government military. And it was like such a similar, I said, Oh my God, the, the same, I feel like that was military, but I feel like that same culture of silence exists in high schools and college campuses and as we dug deeper even middle schools um so i just knew that there was this problem i personally experienced it so and most of my friends had i i honestly think there's i don't have any friends who haven't experienced some form of violence on the spectrum and some sort of a version of of this so, and I, we know the statistics, you know, it's, it's so huge. 25% of women have experienced some sort of violent sexual assault. So the numbers are high and, and then, you know, I think also, I mean, this kind of just goes back to my company. I think about all the people who have got gastrointestinal issues who, you know, call us and say, oh, I have this gastro issue or this gastro issue, you know, the mind and the gut are connected and anxiety and stress contribute to gastro issues. So I always wonder, I wonder how many people are calling us with underlying trauma issues that they haven't, you know, touched into and they're putting it, you know, naming it like as IBS or this or that. And it's really connected to other, you know, trauma and whatnot. So it does kind of pack, but um, I mean, so I just, I talked a lot about it. I tried to, everywhere I go, I would like try to talk and about it and bring in people into the tent and, you know, include them into the conversation. But, you know, I also applied the, this lens, like as, as a leader of my company, as a CPG, we look at a problem, we look at the opportunity, the market, we look at, you know, we have a plan, a strategy, a goal. And I've been thinking like, I've been working in the space around domestic violence and sexual assault and abuse and gender-based violence for 30 years. And I, as an advocate and activist in the space, I'd never heard of other activists or groups or anybody saying, okay, but what's the plan to, besides naming off the statistics, which I had grown up with and memorized, and we should continue to say those statistics just to remind people, but like, I'd never heard of a plan on how we were going to bring those statistics down. What can we do to reduce the statistics? So, okay, it's so high. It could be daunting to think about it, but how can we get it from 25% to 15 to 10 to five to zero? What's the plan for that? What's our national global plan for ending violence against women? I hadn't heard one, but I'm like, where are the challenges? Well, here's one. We have 400,000 untested rape kits for 30 years. We have repeat serial perpetrators. Why don't we step one? Here's one thing we can do. Analyze the data put it in the database, connect the dots, see who's a repeat perpetrator, go out, go get them, investigate, you know, run the process. 
that wasn't being done. And that's like negligence. And, you know, I, I had my own children and I, the day I delivered my two daughters, I made them promises that, you know, I was going to do everything in my power to make the world a safer place for them. If that meant myself walking through fire, which this work has felt like walking through fire, I will walk through fire for them and their generation of friends. And I just, you know, if I can, even today, I mean, I get so emotional thinking about it. If I drop dead today, I know that I have been a part of a movement and have been have moved the needle on the movement. Yeah, I really... Um, I couldn't be more proud of where this generation of activists have taken this movement and a lot more work to do. And, uh, but I, I do believe we'll get there. You're going to make me emotional now as the mother of a daughter. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So if this weren't all enough, I mean, Julie, you couldn't be more impressive. Let's Circle back to LifeWay and your primary product, Kiefer. You recently released your first book, The Kiefer Cookbook, an ancient healing superfood for modern life, recipes from my family table and around the world. What? Why was it important to make this book? Um, what was the process like for you? And share a recipe with us. Too. Sure. So yeah, I wanted to tell the history and the folklore around kefir, but also share about the health benefits. You know, there are so many, we discover more health benefits every, every day. Uh, bacteria is so powerful and we're just learning what we don't know. Uh, but there is a mind gut connection and a skin gut connection. Um, we even just, uh, this is a fun story. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that the, on the set of Barbie, they had a nutritionist and she had had everyone on set drinking kefir or kefir for skin health. So Margot Robbie attributed some of her glowing skin to the consumption of kefir. So that's awesome. I told my girls that uh, they're teenagers now and they started drinking kefir like crazy that day and, and beyond. They like told all their friends and they're all like, my skin, it cleared up. And so it's like acne free and this and that. So it was really funny, but um, great to see. But yeah, so I wanted to share the health benefits. I wanted to, and, and I wanted it all organized in one place. So I, I wanted to write a book and I wanted to share like stories of my family and entrepreneurship and my personal life and use food as a platform, you know, use a recipe as a flat platform to tell a bigger story. And so, yeah, so we did that. And let's see, one of my favorite recipes, I mean, I, everyone, it's very hard for me to pick any one, but I really love this one because it kind of just ties into what we were talking about. Chrissy Turlington, the supermodel, she yeah. has contributed a recipe. This is Christy's mother runner smoothie. Um, because I do think women and mothers especially are so strong. I've gotten to know Christy really well through her work um, for Every Mother Counts. She launched her organization. She's actually who inspired me to launch Test 400K. And I watched her launch her organization around global maternal health and a very similar kind of conversation that we're having. And then, and she also um, did a, produced a movie called No Woman, No Cry, another documentary. And that work is when I saw that you could really have a conversation and use film as a tool to tell a story and move, move, um, you know, humanize a story and and change hearts and minds. I, I thought that was important. But so Christy and I um, uh, have run a number of marathons together and her and the Every Mother Counts team run all over the world, raising awareness on, on global maternal health. So she she developed the smoothie. It, in, it, it um, entails a glass of kefir, frozen banana, two ounces of spinach. You can just I eyeball that some some uh, baby spinach, a cup of frozen pineapples, half a cup of creamy almond butter, a quarter cup of uh, coconut water, um, a little bit of fresh ginger, grated fresh ginger. You could throw in some pink Himalayan sea salt and blend it all in, and it's a great smoothie post workout. That sounds delicious. Right? So what? I know. I want to make one for myself right now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Time for the final four questions. What is your best piece of advice for women today so that they may level up tomorrow? 
don't stop. Just, you know, keep going and follow your gut. We have our superpower is an incredible intuitive gut sense. And I think the future um, workplace is really going to need more intuitive, empathetic gut leading leadership. I think COVID this year, uh, not this year, COVID a couple of years ago, really proved to us that, you know, algorithms and softwares, computer programs cannot kind of provide for pandemics and, and global challenges. And sometimes you have to throw the computer program out and there's going to be situations where there's no playbook and you have to just go with your gut. Use data, talk to your team, of course, get the best advice. You know, all of those things are really important, but then really trust your gut, go with your gut, love your gut, all super important. Where are you traveling to next? Ooh, I'm so excited. I am going to Argentina uh, to see Taylor Swift. Yes, I am so excited. Um, so I'm going I'm going for a week to Argentina. I'd never been. It's part of the world that I've never really explored or traveled in. So I'm very excited. That might be the best answer to this question we've ever got on the podcast. <laughs> okay, what is your pump up song? Oh my God. Um, usually it would have to be something Pearl Jam. Okay. I'll go with even flow. That's a great pop up song, pop up song. And, um, and then, uh, oh God, there's so many. I have, I'm a huge music fan. I love live music. So there's a lot, but it's usually going to be a Pearl Jam connection there. <laughs> and what is your favorite quote? I don't remember who said it, but it's something like, I go after what I want. I don't let it come after me. Something like that. Kind of like go get it. Well, I think it sums up your journey perfectly. And it has been such an honor to have you on the podcast today, Julie. We wish you continued success. We know you will experience it. We can't wait to pick up your book. We can't wait to buy your product and follow you um, as our aspirational, inspirational mentor. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily. It was so fun talking to you. With that, let's get into the top four takeaways. Number one, use what you think might be a weakness as a superpower. Like too young, bring a new generation's perspective. Too old, bring years of experience. Not experience enough? You have a novice lens that is crucial for organizational evaluation and change. You are perfect as you are. Number two, find someone ahead of you and ask them for advice. Don't be shy. Be humble and curious. Number three, when you have a big idea for a big new project, don't hold it in. Start talking about it. Gain momentum and then create a plan for how you are going to make it happen. Get to work. And number four, don't underestimate the power of a good book. Use other people's expertise and apply it to your work. They have been there. Use their knowledge to move your business further. Hey leaders, if you want to be in for a treat, definitely subscribe to this show if you have not done so already, because we have so many amazing episodes coming up. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, wherever you listen so you don't miss out. And if you leave us a review or post about me or tag Leadership is Female on your Instagram stories to talk about the show, we'll enter you into a giveaway. We're giving away something every single month. Some of my favorite things from my favorite work bag to my favorite sunglasses. Make sure that you spread the word and we will reward you for that. I'll also send you a personal thank you note and repost your comments and reviews. Last thing, did this episode bring you any insights, ideas, aha moments, anything you are inspired by? If so, take one second and share the link, post about it on your Instagram, text your friend, email, so many ways to share leadership is female. And if you do post about this show, again, don't forget to tag at Leadership is Female or at Emily Jansen or my awesome guest today, because knowing that this conversation made a difference for you means the world to us and we love to see it. Thank you so much.